the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. I'm Michelle Vesey Bockman, Markets Editor and Analyst for Lloyd's List. Today's guest is Kit Shalell, and he's the author of a book that everybody in the maritime industry needs to take with them on holiday this summer. It's called Dead in the Water and it tells the incredulous and inside story of the $100 million maritime fraud perpetrated by Greek ship owner Mario Iliopoulos. Now, Iliopoulos was found by UK courts in 2019 to have faked a Somali piracy attack and explosion on his Suez Max tanker Brilliante Virtuoso back in 2011, and then fraudulently claim $100 million in marine insurance for the loss. A court judgment found that Iliopoulos, who runs the Seajet ferry service in Greece, was the instigator of the conspiracy. Insurers didn't pay out. Along the way, one man was murdered and his widow is still fighting for justice. Kit, along with co-author Matt Campbell, are both journalists at Bloomberg and have produced an absolute page turner. I started by asking Kit to give a summary. This book is really about one of the biggest and most audacious maritime frauds in history. It's right up there with the biggest and most infamous, the Salem's cases like that. In terms of the scale of it, the money that was at stake and the sheer complexity of it. Um, you know, in the world of modern shipping, it's it's so bifurcated. There's so many different entities in different countries that for criminal for criminality to be really lucrative, it needs to be uh, a sort of deeply planned conspiracy for it to have any chance of coming off. So we wait years back. We discovered the case of this ship that had been mysteriously burned off the coast of. OK, the Let, let's, name, let's name names, the ship and the owner. The ship is the Brillante Virtuoso. Mm -hmm. And the owner, although no one really knew it at the time, was a Greek uh, gentleman called Marius Iliopoulos. And so the, the ship is burned and attacked off the coast of Africa in what looks to all the world like a piracy attack. But, um, you know, right from the start, there were some strange things about it. And I'm sure the listeners to this podcast can probably guess, you know, where it goes. It's one of these gigantic insurance frauds, um, it turns out where the whole incident has been elaborately engineered to ensure the destruction of this loss-making ship and to try and claim a $100 million insurance payout. Um, and of course, tragically, in the course of all this going down, uh, a British marine surveyor called David Mockett was murdered in Yemen. And so the book is an attempt to unravel this gigantic fraud and also to look at you know, the death of David Mockett and, and try and make sense of that as well. Because David was killed shortly after returning back from undergoing a, a, undertaking a survey of the vessel um, after it claimed it was subject to a piracy attack. Yeah, he, That's was deep, right. he was deep in his investigation into the Brillante Virtuoso incident when he was killed, when he was assassinated, really, by a car bomb. And, you know, the, the mystery and the tragedy of his death is one of the reasons that Matt Campbell and I, you know, felt we had to pursue this as a book. Um, we, in, in the ensuing years, we've learned quite a lot about marine fraud and the Brillante Virtuoso and how all that went down. But really, no one had got satisfactory answers to the question of why David Mockett was killed. So we try and do the best we can to deal with that in the book. 
So I have to say and disclose that um, at the time of that attempt, well, that 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 so-called hijack, I was working at Bloomberg and I was the reporter then that, that broke the story. And as we were talking earlier, there was something suspicious about it straight away. I mean, the, the ship was allegedly blown up by the pirates. It was said to sail for Somalia, but it, it went in a different direction. Um, crisis managers were very weird. When, when I was dealing with them, it just didn't fit, you know, the tried and established pattern of Somali piracy, which then was a very, very severe problem. And I think this book really does not show shipping in a, in a very good light, but deservedly so. Um, so what surprised you the most as you were researching this book, Kit? Well, I'm... I guess I'm kind of a shipping fan. I mean, I guess I could say that. I'm one of these people that like to go up to Felixstowe and sit in cafes and watch the big the big, the big, big ships come in and uh, offload their containers and the dance of the big cranes and the way it all works, it's mesmeric. And, you know, in the process of writing this book, I gained a new understanding and respect for how well shipping functions how and how vital it is to the whole world of the of the modern economy and all the things we take for granted. Uh, like a lot of people who you know aren't particularly familiar with the industry, you know, I, I had assumed things were slightly more digital now, that you know the transportations of goods had changed in some fundamental way. But actually, you know, we're probably more reliant on shipping than we've ever been. So it, it's been fascinating to learn more about that industry. But you know, the, our focus was on the, the kind of shady fringes of shipping. Um, which have always existed and always will exist. And it's always a problem uh, that people in the shipping world don't really want to talk about, but everyone knows it's there. And when you start scratching away at, at that sort of criminal underbelly, it leads you to all sorts of fascinating places that, you know, uh, were staggering to discover that the way criminals operate in this space, how much money they can make, um, how little is done to stop them. Those were all, you know, very surprising as, as we as we went on. So... I'm really intrigued to know whether Marios Iliopoulos tried to shut you down. Um, I'm thinking of the, um, you know, the the author of Putin's People, for example, where the publishers yeah. engaged in a really protracted court battle. But, you know, what sort of response, if any, have you had from him? Well, we we, we did an interesting dance with Marios Iliopoulos, um, who I first encountered in a, in a London courtroom uh, in this amazing scene where he was cross-examined by the British legal industry and completely lost his temper, and then was arrested outside court. I've never seen anything quite like it, and I haven't since. So I kind of had a sense of who he was. Um, and uh, Matt, Matt and I wrote a feature for Bloomberg a few years back about this case, just at the start of it. And, um, you know, we tried very hard to, to talk to him, or at least to get some sort of um, communication going with him, because these were really serious allegations that were being made in a court in London. And, you know, we were pretty sure he'd want to respond to them in some way. But he never did. Um, you know, he, he worked extremely hard not to have that conversation to the point where, um, you know, we sent a couriered letter to his um, to his office in Piraeus, where he runs Seajets, which is a which is a big mm. ferry company. Um, and it got turned away on the door. They said they didn't know of anyone called Marius Iliopoulos who works there. So, you know, he, he didn't he didn't want to have the conversation with us. And, and he hasn't to this day. You know, Marius, if you're listening, um, send me an email, you know, we can sit down and, and, and have a conversation. I'd like to hear your side. Um, but no, all, all we got from him was threatening letters from, from lawyers. Um, yeah. Obviously, the fact that the book is out and exists uh, will tell you that they weren't successful. Um, but yeah, we, we did get a few letters warning us uh, not to proceed. 
Uh, that's the the Greek modus operandi. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it does it does seem that um, uh, everything everything around this case and this ship ends up in litigation in, in some way, end up in a legal dispute in some way or the other. Um, you know, the the insurance fraud wasn't the only fraud to take place around the Volante Virtuoso. It was actually one of about five. Um, so this whole this whole ship was a was a hornet's nest of criminality, really. And what did you what surprised you to learn about how the marine insurers and how the maritime lawyers dealt with this case? Because that was the other extraordinary insight that I felt that the book provided. Yeah, there, there were a few moments um, in writing and researching the book when I had to pick my jaw up off the floor. One of them was um, I spoke to a lawyer who had been hired by Marius Iliopoulos to represent him in a different bit of litigation in London. And I called this guy to ask what it had been like having him as a client. And the lawyer didn't know that Marius Elopoulos was the ship owner of the ship for the case that he was working on. Um, he didn't know who the owner was. He had heard the name and he thought the guy might be, he thought Marius might be an executive or, you know, some sort of a, a business associate. He didn't know he was the owner. Uh, his client was a shell company in the Marshall Islands, you know, and that, that that lack of knowledge about who really owns ships was was constantly astonishing to me. I I learned that it's relatively commonplace in in the in the insurance market to insure large vessels in the name of a single ship offshore shell company, and for the yes. insurers not to know exactly who they're entering to these multi million pound contracts with. And you know that that to me remains astonishing. You know if if you want to open a bank account now, you have to do some sort of uh, interaction with the bank to prove your identity. The ba banks aren't allowed to interact with people on an anonymous basis. And that, it, it amazes me that insurers still do. Do you think that they don't want to know or that they choose to indicate that they don't know? Because I find it astonishing because I can look up, you know, the Lloyd's List Intelligence Database oh, okay. and I can see who the beneficial owner is of you yeah. know most of those shell companies. So, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe yeah. they're... Yeah. I, think, I, mean, I think you can get there. I mean, like, it is hard though, right? Like yeah. with some vessels, it seems to have been deliberately a corporate structure, deliberately established to obfuscate ownership. And you can see the appeal of that if you're mm. a ship owner and you and you want to, you know, operate on the fringes of the of the industry. And maybe you want to do some sanctions busting. You want to mm. run some Russian oil, yeah, um, or some Venezuelan oil. You know, it's very helpful to be able to establish a company structure that removes your identity from being connected with the ship. What's surprising, to, what's surprising to me is not that people try and do that, it's that it's tolerated by the financial machinery that supports the shipping industry. And so what did you learn about the shipping industry about, that, that surprised you the most? Um, there, that's a tough question to answer. Um, I think, you know, when you, when you look up close at shipping, um, when you when you take the, the the time to speak to people who work um, in shipping, you see quite a different picture emerging to the glitzy sort of corporate uh, facade that you get at the big shipping events in London or in Piraeus. It's all very black tie and you know and canapes and glitz. But the reality, I think, at least in some parts of the industry, I should say not all, but at least in some parts of the industry, the reality is a bit shadier. You know, and these vessels are, are going in and out of ports where corruption is a way of life and. Uh, you know, that they're dealing in, in markets where you have to operate this way. So it really isn't surprising that this goes on. But when you talk to people, sailors, Filipino sailors who work on these vessels, captains, you know, port agents, 
and you see the reality of their world and what they have to do to survive and thrive you know it's um it's like something from another era so th this investigation into the Brilliante Virtuoso, in terms of, you know, the investigations the marine insurers did and the, the court action, how much collectively do you think was spent? And how does that compare to what they would have paid out if they'd have just looked at it and said, yep, we're, we're just going to pay it? Well, that's a key question, Michelle, because that exactly that kind of calculus happens every day in the insurance markets. What's it going to cost us to fight this versus paying it out? But it, it does often literally just come down to a numbers game, even in a case like this, where there's pr pretty clear evidence of a criminal act being undertaken. It does come down to money. So uh, that, that was true for the Brillante Virtuoso case. I think in the end, they spent in the region of $20 million on legal fees. The case did drag on an awfully long time. Uh, so obviously the lawyers did well out of it. Um, the insurance claim itself uh, ended up being uh, in the vicinity of $100 million. Um, but obviously, the insurers could have settled it for significantly less than that. But they, they reached a moment in the Brillante case when it became, un it became uh, uncommercial for them to seek settlement. And you could see the, the, uh, the insurance syndicate that, that was behind the, the vessel. Uh, when they reached that moment where the lawsuit was going badly enough that um, it would have cost them too much money to settle, that's when you see the strategy changing. Up until then, they'd been, uh, although they they had uh, rejected the claim, uh, it wasn't quite as hostile and confrontational as it became. As soon as they reached that threshold where it was going to cost them an awful lot of money to make it go away, that's when the stratagem changed and they started making accusations of criminality against the ship owner, they ramped up their investigation. It all, it all got very hostile after that. Dead in the Water gives a gripping, dramatic and meticulous account of some extraordinary tales of bravery and extraordinary tales of cowardice. At one point, a Greek oil trader was tracked down to his mother's farm in rural Greece by armed men, prompting a diplomatic spat as private security in the UK Blue lighted their own armed team from Athens to retrieve him. There was an awful lot of individual bravery around this fraud. And I think the reason for that is that the, most people who encountered the wrongdoing around the ship were kind of appalled and disgusted by what they, what they saw. And especially because most people knew that this guy, David Mocker, had been murdered, you know, it left a really sour taste. And for some people, they just, you know, they, they felt they couldn't let it go. They couldn't turn a blind eye. Um, one of the one of the bravest characters in the book is is the Filipino sailor who was on watch that night when the armed men boarded the vessel, and um, Matt Matt Campbell, who's my co-author, um, was the first person to track him down a few years after the event and ask him, you know, what had happened uh, and and to get his account. And he told this incredible story um, about being threatened by the ship owner and the chief engineer and being asked to change his story. Uh, you know, all very incriminating stuff. They, they, they threatened him and his family if he told the truth about what happened. But, you know, all these years later, it, it had been sitting with him uneasily. And he told Matt, I'm not afraid to die. I want to tell the truth. Um, you know, he felt so guilty about his involvement in this that he felt he, he, was, he was able to risk his own safety, to be honest. Um, there are other people in the book as well who, who took a huge risk um, personally to sort of uh, reveal what had happened. One of them is this, is this Greek individual called Blakakis who uh, was sort of a maritime professional. He was involved in oil trading and salvage. And he happened to be in business with one of the conspirators um, who engineered the attack on the, on the Volante Virtuoso. 
And for various complicated reasons, he fell out with them and, and, and came to the UK and decided, you know, that he, he was willing to tell the truth to the, to the police about what had gone down. And he made this statement to the police, you know, uh, blowing open the whole thing, you know, that the attack had been planned in advance, you know, uh, that the salvage crew had deliberately sort of spread the fire rather than trying to put it out. All these things that made it pretty clear that a fraud had happened. Um, uh, and but because of him speaking out, you know, he, he put himself and his family in danger. And ultimately, he had to be evacuated from Greece by armed guards because people came to his house, his house and he thought they were going to kill him. Um, now, Plakakis is still in hiding. He's still under police protection. He could only testify in the lawsuits um, from an undisclosed location flanked by armed police officers. So it just gives you an idea of how dangerous it is to um, to even ask questions about maritime fraud. You, you really do. You find yourself quite vulnerable. It's really a disgraceful indictment on Mario Iliopoulos that he's not responded to, to such um such serious allegations and and actions that were undertaken in in his name when he sought to destroy the brilliante virtuoso um that leads me to to what do you think the shipping industry can do to help cynthia mockett find some justice because uh this this case hasn't got a lot of publicity in the shipping press but mm. what what can we do to help her get justice for the for the murder of her husband uh, yeah, Michelle, that's that's a really that's a really difficult question. It's a big question. Anytime you talk about maritime fraud, which really has been going on for decades, and I feel like, you know, the situation hasn't improved in the last thirty years. If anything, it's got a little worse. The question of what to do about it is the big question, and you know, there there are much smarter people than me who, uh, you know, whose job it is to come up with solutions to what's really a global issue. Um, I think there are a few little things that would help make a difference. I think, you know, anonymous single ship shell companies is not a good way to do business in the modern world. And any action that can be taken to, to minimize those and make sure that the beneficial ownership of a vessel is clear in the same way that a beneficial ownership of a, of a company now has to be clear, that would be a step in the right direction. Um, I feel like um, law enforcement could do a better job of uh, counteracting maritime fraud. Um, I appreciate that it's a very difficult crime to prosecute, but the attitudes with the Berlante and you know numerous other cases is that it's too too hard, and so we're not going to try. Um, which I think for Cynthia in particular is quite a hurtful situation. She wants justice for her husband, and she doesn't feel like the police have given her anything like that. But in in terms of you know what can happen for Cynthia now, I think the best thing, maybe the most uh, achievable outcome is that people understand what her husband died for, that this isn't just a dirty secret that's brushed under the carpet and no one talks about, that there's some recognition that something awful awful happened here and that an injustice has happened. I think just some acceptance of that in the industry would go a long way towards, you know, removing this, this pain uh, on, her, on her and her family. Right, well, thanks very much for, um, for joining the Lloyd's List podcast, Kit. And, um, I extend an open invitation to Mr. Iliopoulos to, to come and discuss the Brilliante Virtuoso on this podcast and to perhaps um, 
seek some sort of um, answers about the people he employed to undertake this fraud and what he can do to um, provide some justice for Cynthia. So thank you once again, Kit. It's been great talking to you. And once again, I cannot recommend too highly this book for Lloyd's List readers um, this summer. Thanks, Michelle.